ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Welcome to This Week. It started with a single tip-off, a suggestion that when it came to Australia's most decorated living soldier, Ben Robert Smith, not everything was as it seemed. It became an explosive story in the nine papers, claiming the heroic face of the Afghanistan conflict was in fact a war criminal. And this week, the culmination of one of the biggest defamation cases in our history. It was an absolute slam dunk in the end. There was no doubt uh, who'd won because ultimately the judge found that he had committed unlawful killings and murders. A judge found the allegations of unlawful murder in Afghanistan were true. As a civil case, the findings were not proven beyond reasonable doubt, just beyond the balance of probability. Still, it's a landmark victory for the soldiers with the courage to speak out and for journalism itself. Nick McKenzie is one of the nation's most accomplished journalists at The Age and Sydney Morning Herald, and one of the two who broke the story. Well, the first tip-off really went to Chris Masters, my colleague, uh, well before 2017. Uh, he was researching a book about special forces in Afghanistan. And in doing that, he just heard this continual drumbeat of whispers. And in 2017, we caught up and decided to join forces. And so uh, we, uh, we, with a bit of intelligence that something had gone wrong involving Ben Robert Smith. We started hitting the phones and talking to as many uh, SAS soldiers, um, commandos, etc., as possible, and ultimately began to embark on what became this massive uh, investigation. And we went into this trying to believe that this, this was not possible, that Ben Robert Smith could not be a war criminal. That was our attitude. But you know, the evidence kept mounting and we kept corroborating the same stories over and over again, sometimes involving sources on different continents saying the same thing. Uh, he wouldn't speak to us. Uh, he refused to, to engage. We'd just get uh, hostile letters from his lawyers. But he, in time, this intelligence turned into uh, evidence, an evidence that was corroborated, and we had enough to reveal what we revealed in 2018. Of course, that then ultimately sparked this extraordinary court battle. And six years on from that decision to team up with Chris Masters, we get this judgment this week. Can you explain to us the significance of this ruling? It's tremendously significant for a whole range of reasons. What has the, the court found? Justice Anthony Basanko has found that Ben Robert Smith participated in four murders. This is the summary executions in, in one case of a, of a civilian called Ali Jan. He was a civilian taken detainee when the SS swept through a village in Darwan, a small village in September 2012. He was not, not a member of the Taliban, wrong place, wrong time, detained, questioned. He smiled at Ben Robert Smith at the wrong time. He was led to a small cliff. This is what the judge found happened. He was kicked off that cliff. He was dragged to a tree, still alive, and then summarily executed. Uh, this is the sort of egregious uh, conduct that the court has found Ben Robert Smith participated in. Uh, what's the consequence of that? Uh, it has huge ramifications. Number one, Ben Robert Smith is the, is the, was the poster boy for our contribution to Afghanistan. Uh, it raises a whole series of questions about military accountability. Uh, for him as an individual, now we have the Commonwealth authorities investigating him with the hope of bringing him to a criminal jurisdiction. Uh, but uh, the story also 
goes to the good men of the SAS who stood up and they're in the vast majority and told the truth. They came to court and they said, what I saw did not sit right with me. What I saw morally was wrong. What I saw was against the, the rules and laws of armed conflict. And it was their truth and their decision to tell the truth uh, that ultimately made uh, or allowed Ben Robert Smith to be held to account for his actions. Indeed, we see in other countries occasionally when cases somewhat like this crop up, they, they can be swept under the carpet. We saw that with a US Navy SEAL uh, where, who was pardoned by Donald Trump a few years ago. Um, what do you make of, of the way we in this country are dealing with this most uncomfortable of truths? It's been difficult for the nation to come to terms with this. We are rightly proud of our ANZAC forebears in history. We are proud of our armed services and we remain so. We we want to believe in military myth. Ben Robert Smith was, uh, in the end, a military myth. Uh, it was a story that was too good to be true and it wasn't true. The thing that Australia has done and done it where the United States and Britain has not done it is, is, is to actually conduct exhaustive inquiries to the Brereton Inquiry uh, over a number of years that investigated the allegations that we reported. That, that investigation uh, is completed in late 2020, but found that, that there had, well, there was credible evidence that there had been many executions of prisoners and civilians, leading to ongoing police and Office of Special Investigator investigations, which continue to this day. The point being that Australia has not turned away from this ugly truth. So Australia is a leader. Right now in the, in the UK, there is a massive inquiry underway that is replicating the Brereton Inquiry of Australia. Britain is now, the UK is now coming to terms with its dark truths. Uh, but certainly Australia has led the way despite some pretty nasty political blowback. There have been politicians who have not stood up, have wanted to play the, the populist game and wanted to cover this stuff up because it was politically opportune for them to do that. Um, but opposed to them are people like Andrew Hastie, the Coalition spokesman on defence, a former captain of the SES who deployed to Afghanistan and became a politician, and he stood up and he said, despite knowing he'd cop a lot of blowback, especially because he's from Perth, and that's where he's, he represents uh, uh, his seat, and said, no, if bad things have happened, they should be exposed, no matter how ugly it is. Uh, and so we can be proud of, of men like Andrew Hastie for doing that. So we are making some good progress when it comes to, to facing these dark truths. What would you say about the laws of defamation in this country? There have been some improvements, but you are still very critical of them, aren't you? I am. When you say we're making some good progress, I mean, we're making slow progress. The Commonwealth has allowed journalists and a media organisation to, to bring this evidence out and, and to go to court and to fight this hell of a battle. It shouldn't have been us. It should have been the Commonwealth. Uh, and, I mean, there has been one, one man is so far charged with war crimes, nothing to do with Ben Robert Smith, one member of the, uh, former member of the SAS. Uh, but the investigations have taken uh, a long, long time. Now, it's good we want our authorities to be thorough, but uh, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. And I think Australia wants, wants there to be a conclusion soon. It could be that Ben Robert Smith is found, there's not enough evidence to, to, to charge him to the criminal standard. That could be the outcome, or it could be that he's charged. But either way, we need the, the authorities to, to, to finish the job that, that we started because that's their job. That's what the, the public expects them to do. And frankly, the onerous state of defamation law in this country almost meant that this whole Ben Robert Smith case was swept under the rug. Uh, if not for his stupidity in actually taking us to court, his arrogance, 
he launched this case, and people must remember that. He took us to court. We never wanted to be in court. But if not for him going to court, forcing this out, and if not for the, the backing of our media company of nine, of the Age, the City Morning Herald, who put everything on the line, not just our reputations, but the company's reputation, and said, we believe in this journalism, then this would have been covered up. Then Robert Smith would have won uh, and his war crimes would never have been exposed. Yes, and kudos to, to you and, and your employer at Nine for, for fighting this because, yes, it's a win for, for public interest journalism, but it's taken millions and millions and millions of dollars to, to get to that win. I want to ask you, you know, you dig up stories that people don't want you to dig up for a living and, and you're very, very good at it. How much of a toll, though, has this battle taken on you personally? I mean, it's it's taken a, a huge toll personally. The uh, the anxiety that that um, uh, has been brought on by it is uh, you know it, it it takes it out of you. But um, for me, what what is also really upsetting is the toll it's taken on other people. Um, I, I talk about the you know the road trauma left in the, the Ben Robert Smith truck just smashed everything in its way. So blokes in the SAS, uh, witnesses who had to come to court, they didn't want to be in court. They didn't want to relive terrible things, uh, but he forced he forced this out. He, he forced uh, men to, to have to revisit the trauma of war. And there was blokes, SAS guys in the stand who, who testified about Ben Robert Smith's war crimes and they were grilled within an inch, you know, absolutely heavily by, by his, his, his barristers. Some of them were left crying in the stand or, or after they gave evidence. The toll on them has been uh, immense. Uh, the, the, everybody who has played a part in trying to expose the truth here has, has copped it and, and um, it's been a, a long, tough, difficult journey and I'm just so relieved the truth has come out. Nick McKenzie there from The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. Well, it turns out Ben Robert Smith was once offered a partnership with PwC back in 2018. You couldn't make this stuff up. PwC's slogan is to build trust in society and solve important problems. But almost every day now, we're hearing more about how the company misused confidential government information to help multinational companies avoid paying tax. PwC is in full damage control, issuing an open apology for the scandal engulfing the consultancy firm. Nine partners have been directed to take leave immediately, some staff are stepping down, and two independent directors will be added to the board. And it's being closely watched overseas. PwC operates in more than 150 countries. It's quite shocking, the scale of it as it's developing in Australia, but unfortunately, no, it's not surprising. Rosie Collington is a political economist and the author of The Big Con, which looks at the use of consultancy firms globally. And this is one of the challenges with researching this sector. And I mean, as citizens, you know, I'm, I'm an academic, so we, we obviously spent some time researching this sector, but as kind of everyday citizens, as, uh, or as a citizen as well, it can be very challenging to find out things about this sector, um, simply because they're not mandated by governments to disclose uh, information, for example, about even where they make their money. So they're private limited companies or they operate as different types of private companies, which means that unlike companies that have shareholders, they're not mandated to share information about where they make money and who their clients are, what their biggest kind of client groups are. So 
unfortunately, it often takes expensive government inquiries or journalistic investigations to unearth what is going on within these companies. And that shouldn't be the case, right? Because that means that we're probably missing a lot of things that, that are happening that we simply just don't know about. When those issues are unearthed, though, in your experience, how big is the the global fallout for the companies that get caught? And, and, you know, what can we expect globally for PwC? Yeah, historically, um, the big companies, they have done a very good job of withstanding knocks to their reputation that come from the um, unearthing of these scandals, you know, and just to give you an example, I mean, around the world now, people are, are, are aware, it's probably the case that has made McKinsey a household name in many places, aware of its role in advising Purdue Pharmaceuticals um, in the United States on how to, quote unquote, turbocharge its sales of opioids. But its its revenues have continued to grow and grow and grow. You know, this this has not really affected the profit margins, and they're certainly not the profits of McKinsey, and and generally we don't see this as we don't see Knox reputations as being kind of a, a, a huge threat historically. But that said, you know I think today increasingly more governments are waking up to some of the challenges and issues with the this sector. So, you know, I'm optimistic that we might see uh, kind of gen- genuine repercussions for companies going forward, especially in Australia, which, by the way, I want to applaud your the, the government and the Senate at the moment, because there seems to be kind of much more attention on this in Australia than in many other countries. Well, that's interesting you say that, because I was going to ask whether there are any other countries that are doing this better than we are when it comes to the the rise and the use of these consultancy firms in recent years. Yeah, so there are other countries that have tried to address the issues that you're kind of encountering in Australia um, in slightly different ways and for slightly different reasons, so not kind of in the wake of a scandal. Um, to give you an example, the Danish government, when it, came, when it came in in 2019, the kind of previous government to the one that's now in power, they identified that the government had been spending increasingly vast amounts of money on management consultancies. And they introduced a cap, a spending cap. I think it was they wanted to cut it in in by 50%. And they achieved that way ahead of their deadline. And one of the ways that they ensured that this was going to be successful as well was by also establishing an in-house public sector consultancy to ensure that those departments that had become quite dependent on capacity from these big consulting companies then kind of did not have an immediate capacity deficit. There must be benefits, though, to the use of these consultants too. you know, for example, of avoiding a bloated and, and slow moving public service. What are the what are the pros? Yeah, so I would say that, of you know, we argue that, of course, governments shouldn't do it everything, absolutely everything themselves. And particularly if there is a new challenge or if there's something that they haven't had to do before or that they need to do something differently, then part of the process of innovating government is also working with other actors. Um, In terms of whether these organisations, these companies are the best actors to kind of ensure a more agile, more flexible government that is able to adapt, um, 
often, you know, that actually isn't the case. If we think about the type of knowledge that is necessary, the type of capacity that governments need in order to be able to um, kind of respond to these emerging challenges, it's often very specialised. And these companies actually don't have the kind of specialised knowledge often because they haven't been working in government like many, you know, civil servants have been. And, And I think, you know, part of the issue or part of why these Um, companies are used at scale and scope is precisely because governments have developed a lack of confidence in the ability of their own civil servants and have kind of adopted this assumption that if there is a challenge, then the default mode of uh, addressing it is to go to these consultancies rather than looking internally. So, you know, I guess I would argue against this idea that they somehow are a kind of remedy to a bloated public sector. You know, actually, they are a source of bloating bloated spending in the public sector because they're very, very expensive, right? So they can often be kind of very wasteful as well. Well, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Because it's quite hard, you'd imagine, to turn back the clock when you have public servants who left, went to consultancy firms, got paid a lot more. Uh, how, do you, how do you attract them back? How do you build the capacity again in your civil service? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's something that, you know, we we get asked quite a lot. And this is why we look in the book at the consulting industry and the big con as not just being an issue with the consultancies themselves and the actions and their activities, but also the ways that governments and businesses use them. Um, So this is a systemic problem. and, And the role of consulting in our economy also has to be addressed as a systemic issue with our economies and with our governments. So if we think about governments in many parts of the world have experienced an effective pay freeze of public sector pays and conditions of people working in the civil service are often you know, not very good. If we think about the types of tasks that civil servants are put to, you know, that they're often told, you know, you're here just to ensure that the government is functioning well, but when it comes to the juicy challenges, the the kind of interesting stuff, that's when we're going to outsource. So there's also, you know, an argument that to address this problem, to address the big con, as we as we call it, we also need to be ensuring that the types of jobs, not just in terms of paying conditions, but in terms of what civil servants are put to and what they're kind of encouraged to do, um, is also interesting. Um, we know that you know the the types of skills, the types of knowledge that is necessary for working in government, as I said, is often very specialist. Even though we we take that for granted in kind of everyday everyday discourse. So perhaps if we had a different way of thinking about government and and we recognise the kind of abilities of civil servants that would also help to retain people in-house. Rosie Collington there, the author of The Big Con. Imagine being fined $50,000 and jailed for three months for taking part in a protest. That's the law now in South Australia. Legislation was rushed through Parliament just a fortnight after climate change protesters caused traffic chaos in the Adelaide CBD. $750 to 50 grand, that's insane. I don't think that represents what people want at all. We're really worried about where this bill could go. But the state's Premier, Peter Malinowskis, says it's targeted at repeat offenders who use crowdfunding to pay for their fines. What we're changing is the penalty regime 
for people who recklessly, with impunity, break the law in a way that unreasonably disrupts the lives of so many South Australians. So where should the limits of protest lie? Tim Dean is a senior philosopher at the Ethics Centre. Well, modern society, modern liberal society, enshrines a right to protest. So prior to liberal society, there were protests, but it's very much now a feature of our modern system where we have lots of means to be able to take political action. We can influence the course of our society. We can influence our government through our kind of democratic rights. But we also have a very important ability to express ourselves, to protest things that we believe are problematic outside of that. And this has been very important in promoting many different uh, societal advances. I mean, the five-day working week came out of a protest movement started from the unions. We might also remember things like the Franklin River Dam protest in Tasmania, which started the creation of the environmentalist movement in Australia and the Greens Party in Australia. We may be breaking the law in the eyes of the police, but we believe what we are doing is quite just and right. In more recent times, we've seen movements that we've taken on board like Black Lives Matter. There are two systems of justice in the United States. There's a white system and there's a black system. To protest issues around racial and sexual discrimination and harassment, uh, indigenous uh, incarceration rates. These forms of protest have been important in defining the national agenda and informing uh, societal progress. So are the protests of today more militant or, or more disruptive than what we've seen in the past? It would be hard to say that if you look at the history of protest, particularly in the 20th century, if you look at places, say, I suppose, in the United States in the 1960s, the civil rights movement and other protests around that time, anti-war protests, they often became quite militant or quite violent. In Australia, I don't think we've had the same kind of history of violent protests, but they are not unheard of. But I don't think that we live in a time that is any more disruptive or any more violent or uh, any more aggressive or intense in its form of protest than previous times in the 20th century. So what then can we make of these potentially huge fines that can be handed down in South Australia, $50,000, which is even more severe than the New South Wales penalties, which got global attention? What's the justification that's been offered for such severe penalties in South Australia? The argument from the government in South Australia, and we also heard this from New South Wales, is that certain forms of protest are negatively affecting the general public. By blockading roads or preventing businesses from opening, they're having a major economic impact as well that can be impacting the wider society. Now, because the government is limited in its means of controlling and preventing protest, there is still a right to protest in Australia that we uphold. They need to use other means in order to dissuade or prevent these protests from going ahead. One means that they do have at their disposal is issuing fines on the basis of this kind of public disruption. That way the government can argue that protest is still allowed under certain circumstances, but they are able to kind of push away or dissuade certain types of protest that they believe is disruptive. One of the things that the South Australian Premier Peter Malinowskis pointed to was that the modern day protesters can crowdsource, that is get small donations from supporters of the cause in order to pay the, the previous fines. 
Is is that an argument uh, that holds water in your view? Philosophically, usually fines are justified to be in proportion to the harm or the damage that is caused to the public good or to the society to, or to other people. It's not usually pegged to the ability for people to pay such that we raise the fine if they are able to pay more. The South Australian government and others insist that uh, protests will still be allowed. But are we with these fines and penalties now moving to a model of kind of state-sanctioned protests rather than spontaneous civil disobedience, which has proved so effective in getting things done that are good for society in the past? Well, I think that's what a lot of people are concerned about, because when the government starts to impose restrictions on reasonable and ethical protest, then it constrains the ability of the public to be heard. It constrains the ability of the public to voice their genuine grievances and their genuine concerns. And even a fairly reasonable sounding law Uh, in our system requires some level of interpretation. It requires the government to exercise some kind of discretion. So we need to be able to trust that the government and the institutions such as the courts will exercise that discretion in, in a way that does not inhibit our right to have a voice in protest. And there's a legitimate concern that the state can say, look, we will only punish those who are on the extreme whilst leaving some ambiguity around terms like what applies what qualifies as extreme, allowing them to creep back and further constrain our ability to protest in cases where it might uh, be you know, uncomfortable for the government to allow that to go ahead. That's Tim Dean, a senior philosopher at the Ethics Centre. That's the episode for this week. You can subscribe if you want, just search for This Week. It's produced by Madeline Jenner, Rachel Hayter, Marcus Hobbs and me, David Lipson. Catch you next time.